Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian, and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world, sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. My guest on Breaking Free today is Madian Al-Jazeera, a successful businessman and human rights activist living in Jordan. He's Palestinian but wasn't raised in Palestine. He's Kuwaiti-born but not Kuwaiti. He's British-educated but not a Westerner. He's a gay man out of the closet but still living in the shadows. Is how he is described in the preface of his honest and moving memoir, Are You This or Are You This? A Story of Identity and Worth. Welcome back to part two of this episode on sexuality. In last week's episode, Midian describes his mother's childhood escaping the bombing in Janine occupied Palestine and how that trauma carried on with her for many, many years until this day, having a fear of balloons and any loud noises. Honest accounts of molestation, emotional rape and shame at a very young age and experiencing homophobia in Oklahoma at age 16. And so, continuing from there, I ask Median. So, after you um, studied in Oklahoma and you stayed there six years, you moved to Boston, and um, you felt really at home there. You were part of a community, and you began to accept your sexuality. So, something changed all of that for you, something really difficult what was the it the invasion you know when I, when I was in Boston we were still you know, I was born and raised in Kuwait hmm. and I lived in my, my you know my dad paid the paid my rent paid everything and I had a credit card basically my salary was mine to play with so I had you hmm. know as you said earlier I really had a, I, re, I read every time I look back at my life growing up I'm just so grateful a really happy life. I was loved by my mom and dad. I was loved by my by so many people. I loved so many people. And my mom and dad loved each other and we saw it and we witnessed it and we learned it. And 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 luckily enough there was some money as well. You know, we traveled and my dad took us everywhere. We would plan our summers a year ahead of time and and, and we would travel and we would go places. And there was always the education of the place that we go to and all of this and all of that. So I lived well. We weren't millionaires, but we, but my dad did well. So in Boston, I lived, uh, you know, a frivolous life until the invasion. Come the invasion and my whole life turned around. The Gulf War. The Gulf War. Kuwait got invaded. I had just arrived from, from Kuwait. And I was jet lagged and, and this friend of mine, Sahel, calls me up, wakes me up at 11 at night and says, Medium, get up, get up. You know, Kuwait's been invaded. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, get up, it's all over TV, the media. And, and then I opened the, the TV on CNN and I looked and I was like, oh my God, it's true. My, my eldest brother and dad stayed and took over the, you know, they tried to protect the refineries as much as they can. Because my, my brother was a fire and safety engineer. And he's actually the one who came up with the formulas to put out the fires that were set by the Iraqi forces then. Um, but they protected 
they did their best to protect what they could from the company and the refineries. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and they were, they were, from their Kuwaiti bosses, they were encouraged. And because they were Jordanian Palestinians, you know, the Iraqis were okay with them. Although on, on more than one occasion, they almost got killed. So anyway, the, the, they, after the liberation of Kuwait is when my, my dad, when the Kuwaitis came in, they deported my brother and my dad. They just deported them. There was, they arrested them and they deported them and negated every, every emotion they had towards Kuwait. You know, they, to them, they defended their country. At that time, Kuwait was our country. We were born. My dad was there for 40 years. Mm. This is, and and I'm, I'm, I'm stressing on this point because our lives and my life, I talk about displacement, this continuous displacement. Everywhere you went or everywhere I went, I would embrace that town. I would embrace that country like it was mine. I was born and raised in Kuwait. Dad lived 40 years in Kuwait. We were born there. This was your parents' second time of being a refugee. That was my parents' second time. Mm. For me, my first time, my first refugee is inherited, this emotional inheritance you get from your parents. You never, they never, they make sure you know that they were refugees and that we are refugees as Palestinians. They made sure we grew up with that gnawing Mm. at us in the back of our heads as we grew up in Kuwait. And then... We had, I had the full experience of being a refugee again, or being, you know, a, like a real life. Yeah, part, uh, trauma is passed down through the generations. So even if you hadn't experienced it, but then it was down, this yeah. was your taste of experiencing it for the first yes. time. So you're left with no money, no job, no tribe, you're homeless. And, and no, no, no memories even of, you know, all my ticket stubs that are my little model planes and all these little things that I grew up all these years putting together, collecting, yes. gone. You know, how important is it, these things to keep that that make you feel like it's part of home? Because later on, when we talk about you moving to Jordan and the family being there, the, the apartment has a few things that they've managed to keep and bring with them from Kuwait that makes it almost feel like home and then you look out the window and it's you know it's not desert like we were used to you know there's mountains and greenery and olive trees which was beautiful but they just didn't work it didn't though you know the move the move was very uh, violent it was a very violent move yeah and and you know and we couldn't get much out of kuwait because mom mom kept driving back and forth what a woman what a warrior and she's not the only one there were a lot of women and who got in the cars and started to shuttle between kuwait via iraq to jordan collecting what they could and putting stuff in their cars so you ended up staying with a friend in honolulu but um you know even though that sounds nice that you're on an island you actually felt depressed and closed in it was a tar- it was a dark time in my life because yeah it, it was a dark time in my life because i got laid off in boston the economy in the us was a depression it had started this wave started from the east coast and moved west and we were on the east coast and of course with with, with depressions economic depressions 
you know, the construction industry is one of the first that drop and I was an architect. So I got laid off. And at that, and I, so it was literally all within a month, month and a half, invasion, no money. I had to get out of my apartment because, you know, I needed to look for something a lot cheaper. Got in a small car accident. And then immediately after that, I get laid off. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I had this little bit of money. What do I do? What do I do? I had heard that a lot of people were going to Hawaii because the economy was was thriving in Hawaii, which was so far away. And just to give it an idea, Hawaii is like a 12-hour flight from Boston. It was far. And, you know, so I thought, you know what? That's it. That's all I will do. That's all I can do. I got on a plane. I went to Chicago for a few days and then got on a plane from Chicago. It was four hours to LA. And then from LA, I thought it would be like an hour and a half to Honolulu. It was another five. Oh my God. And I, that was my first shock. It's like, oh my God, this is so far. Where am I going? Where am I going? And you fly and it's, you know, it's clouds, water, water, clouds, water, water, puffy clouds, water, water, boom, you're in you know, island. Yeah. Now, luckily you have lovely friends that you meet along the way and a supportive family so in steps ellen and invites you to stay with her in san francisco which was you know really saving you from the situation that you were that you were in and you were trying to make out that it wasn't as hard as it was or it wasn't as tough as it was and things weren't as bad as they were um and ellen actually wrote the book with you I understand Ellen uh, is just an amazing friend she's a little older than me and she's always mothered me bossed me around and I let her because I love her and so when I first went there I stayed with her yeah so three things three pivotal moments happened there in San Francisco that you mentioned in the book what were they the three pivotal points was, you know, a little bit down the line, you know, while I was there, Ellen realized that I was, I was gay, but I was just, just wasn't coming out to myself. And so she outed me to me herself. Um, uh, and, uh, and that was, that was a big step forward, because that's when I, you know, somebody I love and trust that I was terrified of coming out to, uh, did the job of outing, outing me to me. And, and still loving me and still supporting me. And that was very, very important because that's every gay man's fear is to lose the people around them. And mind you, it's a big fear because we grow up lying. We, we lie, we learn to lie to survive. So there's, it isn't just, it isn't just the, the fear of losing you know, your parents and your family and your loved ones for being gay. It's also the shame of, oh, shoot, when they find out, you know, what are they going to think when they know that I've been lying on so many other stories to cover up my, my sexuality? So many people feel shame about being liars, not realizing that they're liars because they've got used to it from having to survive, like you exactly. say. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a big relief and a big changer, life changer for me. I had more, more yeah. confidence more confidence that I was actually a good person and I am lovable and I can be loved and trusted. And Ellen gave mm. that to me. 
<laughs> another time was, you know, I was getting ill, obviously with all the stress, you bottle up, you shelf stuff, you think you're dealing with it, but your body catches up. And I had an ulcer that was beginning to bleed. And <laughs> I thought, you know, I just, the doctor said, oh, you have a, you have a growth. And I thought cancer, that was it. I, I you know, I stopped at my own analysis of things and I thought mm. I had cancer and, um, and panicked. And with that thought, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm not going to die not recognized. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to die not knowing who I am. And Ellen already loves me, so my brothers should love me too. So I went, went on this whole spree of writing letters. Mind you, there are no phones or text messages then, so, um, no, mobile phones. So I wrote all these letters to all my siblings, and I FedExed them. So I FedExed one <laughs> telling everybody I was gay, you know, and, yeah. and, and that was all because I thought I was dying. What were you terrified most of, the cancer or the reactions of your siblings? <laughs> I think it was the reaction. Mm. No, I took it. I take that back. I was very afraid and ashamed to do it, but I did it. I was, I, I, yeah. I was afraid of dying in the sh in the shade you know in the shadows dying and not knowing and people not knowing who i was that's what my fear was i was rebelling mm. i'm not going to die now and, and no one know who i really am it's just, it's, a, it's a very strange way of thinking and, and feeling at that time i didn't want to die negated well, all, all people near yeah all people near death start wanting to be honest and say things um and it was that, yes. You know, Absolutely. yeah, for, for that closure, you know, they don't want to leave with, with the yes. story half told. Yes, and, and yeah. not just half told. I felt I can't die negated. Mm. My truth, I need, the truth needed to come out. My truth needed to come out just needing to be honest about everything to feel that you are accepted as you are unconditionally it is a right it is the right of every everyone's right and of every child it is so important to look at gender equality and and sexuality I mean, there's a lot that we need to do because the trauma starts there yes so that was great that you got that off your chest and that you didn't have cancer but then something else that was really difficult happened to you in San Francisco the third pivotal moment and um, the third thing that happened in San Francisco uh, which again very pivotal um, was I got gay bashed and for those who don't know what that means it means you get attacked for your sexuality or for the assumption of you being a gay man. And it wasn't just me, it was me and, and three others, who were, you know, two of them roommates and, and, and the fourth friend. And I'll leave the story for the book, but that ended up with me um, bashed and hurt um, and hospitalized. And uh, to go through the hospital, I, you know, I, I accepted to to identify the people who attacked because they had done other stuff. And I'm being very, very uh, short on this because I don't want 
and want you to lose the story. I want you to read it. Um, I ended up uh, either the witness protection program and uh, going to another state and changing my name, or I thought, well, let me go to Amman. At least I'm, you know, I'm already roughed up. What I really need is love and family, and and I decided to move to Amman. So. Yes, so you moved to Amman in 1992, I believe, with all, most of your family there. And you write about it being a surreal experience. What, what was so surreal about it? Um, uh, it was like you had the whole Kuwait society of Palestinians and Jordanians. And the, you know, if you, they were on a tray and you just moved them from one table to another and everybody was now suddenly, you know, the same people selling gum at traffic lights, everything, the same faces, was just moved from one country to another en masse. Wow, um, that must be uh, very strange. It was, that was very, very strange. It, it made Amman much easier to deal with because... You know, you kept bumping, I kept bumping into people I knew. And the questions, mm. the typical questions, like, oh my God, you're here as well. You know, are your parents okay? You know, where do you live now? How did you come out? Where were you when it happened? You know, th these questions were just continuously being repeated again and again and again and again. And that, in its own way, uh, just was made, made this move so much easier that I was now amongst... <laughs> a million other people who had survived the trauma as well. Yes, yeah, so they're in the same situation as you. Um, but then you prove yourself as, a, um, as an amazing architect and a great businessman, opening your first restaurant, Zawade, with um, a few other people that you knew from Kuwait, or I don't know, you met them in Jordan. No, met them in Jordan. Mm. And then after that, um, you open the Booksack Cafe. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And tell us about the signs. I love the signs that you got of the orange tree on Rainbow Street, etc. I, I fell in love with the first circle area in Amman because it was old. It's the old aristocratic neighborhood of Amman. So these old mansions abandoned, um, old houses, most of them abandoned. It was a very quiet, dead neighborhood, but it was clearly the history just, it was, there's something about the stone architecture mm -hmm. and the mature fir trees and, and fruit trees that are very Palestinian to me. And this is, you know, and it just felt at home and I loved it. And uh, we were walking and there's this, built up wall that had a sign on the side over a garage that said for it was like needed dusting you really needed to squint to see it but somehow i saw it and it was a for rent and it had a number on it and the number was a short number not even the full numbers because as the city grew they started to add digits to telephone numbers so it was one of those that didn't have the added digit digit so obviously it was for rent for a long time and, and I looked and there was an orange tree, there was a lemon tree, and I thought then was an orange tree, but it was bitter orange, the bitter orange tree, khush And it was bursting with oranges. It was, and the lemons, I mean, it was just, it, the, 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 the tree was exploding. 
with that. And it was on Rainbow Street um, or near Rainbow Street? It was off of Rainbow yeah. Street, on a side street. And I saw that, you know, coming from Kuwait, we did not grow around fruit trees. So this mm. like, on its own was a miracle to me, a miracle of life. Oh, my God, fruits on a tree. And we lived in a desert. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, and I looked at that, I... I stole the whole sign because I didn't want anyone. <laughs> to, I didn't want anyone to take the space. I stole the sign. I don't know why I stole it. I mean, it's not like there was like. I mean, it, it was so dusty. Clearly, it, nobody was seeing it. Yes. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to be in that neighborhood. But no, just in case, I wasn't going to give anyone the chance. So I steal the sign. But then we jumped over the fence. And. And there's a small courtyard and there's this very old rundown house. I go through it and then on the side, there's, a, you know, you, you kind of come out of a window and there's, you go up a slope upstairs and then there's another house, you know, and then I go into the backyard and I see a turtle. I see a turtle and I turn around to Lena and I tell her, this is it. This is where we should be. Here's the sign. It's a turtle. <laughs> And and sh and sure as hell, yeah. we took that space. And you were right because, honestly, it you know it was books at cafe that made that area popular. It was. I mean, we were the only people who, yeah, yeah. There, nothing was open, and and we just we shone. We just you know like this little star that came that just sparkled on that mountain. Then, mm. um, yeah. Now now, Zawada was a great success and the cafe was a great success and you employed and helped so many people as well that were refugees or weren't accepted for whatever reason for their gender, sexuality in other places. And you became an activist in a way. You stood up for people and it was, you know, a place that had a lot of joy attached to it. But there were three times you were in danger and you had to leave. You had to leave the country. So these stories, like many other stories, I, I tell in the book very lightly and I skim through, but they were not as light as they, they were written. They were very traumatic. And there were three times when I left, I had to leave. I was afraid. The first one was just a simple blackmailing. It was this girl and guy. They knew you know they they sniffed weakness maybe they may not have known that i was gay but they sniffed weakness maybe because i was a little effeminate and and that's when i was saying that not just males you know prey on you but even females prey on these weaknesses so being effeminate meant i was weak and they preyed on it and they tried to blackmail me the second time was i was helping the the women of the area by taking what you know the, what cakes they made baked and i would sell it for them and this way i got they made money and i made money and i had the women sitting at home making money there was empowerment of some sort i didn't have these words in mind i just did it because i wanted to help out just, just like being an activist i did things and i didn't and i stood up for a lot of people and had no idea it was called activism until somebody pointed it out mm. um and and i think that's just my nature the peace process had been finalized in Jordan between Jordan and Israel. And I had hired a student, as I said, an Israeli student. I had no idea he was Israeli and I had no idea his mother was an Israeli. 
but then that was very challenging how I needed to deal with a decision I had made that I didn't know, didn't have all the information on. And it was big proof of me and my brother actually holding onto our values of equality and of we, you know, we needed to strategize and work well with this issue, but it's in the book. That one's in the book. The third time was, um, I think Jordan was in turmoil. Uh, the late King Hussein was on his final days uh, after he'd come back and changed the constitution and King Abdullah came in. Uh, I think the country was just, things were up and down all over the place. And I think some people just flexed some muscles, wanted to flex muscles in front of each other, in front of the government, and they targeted me mm. and the cafe. And you were forced then to come out to your father, which was something you thought you'd yes. never do or never have to do. Um, but that situation forced you because it was proof of what they were saying was not true. And that was a very, very difficult period for you. And you had to travel again. Every single time on one of these, I would end up in Canada first and then in the US and then I'd come back until things calmed down. And I've done that a few more times. And, and you refused asylum in Canada because you didn't want to give up your Jordanian passport. You know, that, that had become home where you'd worked hard to set up a business and a name for yourself. You can't keep starting from zero but I loved Jordan I love Amman I wouldn't live anywhere else mm. um and I, I I just couldn't handle the idea of giving it up I couldn't give it up alongside being Palestinian and growing up in Kuwait and growing up gay and Palestinian and all of this and knowing that you don't, don't belong anywhere and here I was I was finally belonging to this country and I still feel that it's mine um Passports and official papers of this sort are a, a crucial part of your identity. We're already struggling with identity. Yes. I'm already. Yeah. So again, you're reminded that, no, this is not your identity. You don't belong here or we can easily. Or I, was, it, it was, I was being pushed to give that up. And I was, and then it was, it was in Canada on arrival that I decided no. Yeah. I will not do this. I'm going to hold on to this identity. No one's going to take it away from me. It was defiance, just pure defiance. Um, and so you went to your brother in Texas, a refugee again, and you explained that limbo felt worse than hell. And I, I understand that feeling. I think even with the smallest things, when you can't make a decision, that's the hardest part. Making the decision, whether it's hard or easy, is at least a relief. But that limbo of you don't know what's next, what you're going to do, what, you know, what decision to make is hard. And um, I think it, I could feel your pain when you say, well, when do I get to exhale? But no point. Can you just let go, you know, relax? Yeah. Just when you think you have survived an explosive mm. episode in your life, because they've all been explosive. Mm. something comes up and it's another one it's another explosion and 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 it doesn't stop and there. it doesn't stop there and 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 this is yeah. why when do I get to just sit back and say yes I'm okay it's going to be okay I'm accepted as a gay man I'm accepted as a Palestinian I'm accepted you know just being accepted and adopted by a location and by people 
Yeah. Then something comes, bam. Yeah. And just uproots me. That was the feeling. You know, when you have citizenship and these things are just part of life, you don't realize what a privilege it is to just have yes. that backup, that safety. Hmm. So then you get an opportunity to manage a restaurant in New York and that all sounds great. And I'm like in the book, hurrah, it's all going to work out for Midian now. But the freedom there didn't protect you against bias no, and discrimination, it did it? And, and, and again, from my own people. Um, again, mm. you know, when you, my sexuality kicked in, it was there, it was preyed upon. I was the weak one. It was amazing how also the, the dynamics of, of people who are of position and age and experience and how they maneuvered around that, how they maneuvered around mm. lowering my value and trampling on, on, all over me. And, and mind you, this is happening and I'm not thinking that this is happening. You know, you allow, because I was, again, this is one big thing that I had discovered through my years is, you know, when you're a survivor with survivor mentality, you accept the short end of the stick and you get used to it. Yeah. You keep thinking, oh, you better you just, just shut up, keep your head down, take it because, you know, you don't know when the next explosion is going to be. You, you know, no, no, I don't want any more explosions. So I will, and you're not saying these words. I'm not saying these words. I, um, I, I ultimately end up taking the abuse, taking the bashing, taking the devaluing because I'm afraid of losing what I have because I'm a survivor and I'm now used to this, the short end of everything. Mm. When you're a survivor, you can't dream anymore. So you hold on to whatever little stuff you have. And, that was, and this mentality is so damaging because yeah. you know it allows you and it opens you up for abuse and you take it and you accept it and it becomes a pattern that I needed to break. And I broke it in Tunis. I didn't break it in, the, in New York. I broke it in Tunis. That's when I realized free. I had a pattern. I was going, in a, it was a cycle and I had to mm. break that cycle. How did you break it? You make it sound like it's easy, but it, you know, it's a process, isn't it? It's a process and it's, sometimes it's just saying it. Because I remember- Yeah, being the, aware of it. Being aware seeing of it. that, you, yeah taking responsibility of um, you letting the pattern repeat because there's no awareness. And of course, because you were treated um, as a, as the weak one or disrespected early on, you will believe those things and start to attract those same situations. So it's not your fault. It's, it's the fact that you started to believe these things about yourself. And once you realize that they're not true, yeah you can change the pattern and the energy of, of the people that you attract in your life. You can create more boundaries. And is that what you feel started yes, to change? My whole you? energy changed. You attract what you give mm. off. I mm. was giving off weakness and I attracted the bullies and I kept mm. quiet. I attracted the, the abuse. I attracted all of that because my energy was so low and it was giving off the, all the wrong messages and once I realized and became stronger, mm. my energy changed. And then sadly, your father passed away in 1995. And then you had an even stronger need to find your identity. 
So tell us a little bit about that, how you discovered your original family name and found out about your grandfather, um, that he was very similar to you, in fact. What worse than not knowing what your real last name is? I mean, it's like, it's like your identity. This is, this is what's on paper, right? Mm-hmm. The most superficial stuff on a paper. And you don't know what your real last name is. We would always ask, why, why is one uncle, you know, Jazar Butcher, and the other uncle is Karat uh, Jazara, and then we are Jazira Island. But why? How is that possible? Aren't you brothers? Yes, we are. So, you know, from mom and dad? Yes, from the same mom and dad. So how, do, how come you ask these questions and they give you the, you know, they don't give you good stories to, that stick as a, a good reasoning. Yeah. But, you know, as you grow older and as you go through stuff and as you develop and as my father passes away, shocker, um, uh, you know, complete shocker. It just took me off my axis completely. You know, and then, then I was like hungry. Who is he? Where is he? Where did he come from? I need to find out. Only to discover that, you know, the typical Palestinian story of collective trauma, that they were so traumatized. That, that family, that side of the family was so wealthy, but architects and builders and masons. And, you know, and after that, inva- that, that, they talk about General Moffat uh, and after he was killed, how, you know, Janine was attacked and destroyed in many places. And a lot of the places that were um, destroyed, mm. destroyed were, were properties and, and that belonged to us. And, and that didn't sink very well with the two grandfathers that we had, uh, siblings, and, and then they just fell, heart attacks, the two at young ages. And suddenly everything was left. The eldest of the family then was, I think, 12. And she took over one of the shops, leftover shops that they had. They had the Khan where it was like a hotel. They, had, they were architects. They were, this all just stopped. So it was literally, literally from riches to rags. And these people had the mentality of survival as well. So they could only think of their next meal because they were kids they needed to, f- to feed their younger siblings. And, and, when you have, and that's if you're living the day to day, you have no time to think of what happened. And what happened was so painful. They shelved it so far mm. back that even when you ask the questions at an older age down the line, when, 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 when life was better and they were traveling and they had money and... They didn't want to talk about it until you you would ask and they wouldn't have a question. But because I had dug so much, you know, all I had to do at a much older age, I would talk to my mom and say, Mama, you remember when this, this, this happened? I would have to give her something. And they said, yeah. And this has happened, and that happened, and the planes yeah. came down, and, and your uncle and your grandfather did this, your grandmother said that. Suddenly, all the information starts to come in, and you start to piece them together. And you're thinking, why didn't you tell me this before? Well, you never asked. They didn't want to talk about what had happened to them. Mm. And I don't know what to ask. But after the peace deal was signed between Jordan and Israel in 1994, you visited Janine once again. What was that like? 
I did. Mama didn't want me to go. She was adamant. She didn't want me to go. It had been over 20 years that I had been there. So I, 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 I smuggled my way in. I flew, I flew down to Aqaba and I crossed, I told Mama I was at the beach staying in, in Aqaba, but instead I literally, I arrived by plane and I crossed by foot. And it was all out of memory because I couldn't tell anybody that I was going. I didn't want Mama to know. And I know Mama, she's got, she's got pull. <laughs> she couldn't stop me anywhere in the world. And then there was at the Intifada, the second Intifada, there were, the borders were closed. There was no integration whatsoever. And everyone was like, why do you want to go to Janine? They didn't think I was Arab. Everybody thought I was Israeli. Um, and I said, oh, I'm just visiting. No, no, nobody visits Janine now. Until some, somebody who was Palestinian from Nazareth chased me a little bit and asked me in English, why do you want to go to Janine? And I said, look, I'm, I'm from Janine. And he flipped to Arabic, mm. switched to Arabic. And in Arabic, uh, just to check, it's like, what family are you from? So I told him. He said, look, just cross the street down. There's a tree, stand over there on the other side of the road. One of the service cars will come back and he'll slow down when he sees you and you say Janine. It's like being in <laughs> Harry Potter, isn't it? I like did you that. need to know the code oh, and yeah, you need the special car that comes special. Yeah. There is the code. <laughs> and I did that. And of course, the taxi driver is looking at me. He's like, and there were a few other people in the car. Um, it was one of those long Mercedes that had like three doors. And, uh, and he looks at me thinking, are you Arab? And I said, yes, yes, I'm Palestinian. You don't look Palestinian. I, said, I am Palestinian because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm light. I've got colored eyes. And Yeah. And you're used to getting this uh, immigration all the time, aren't you? Whenever you travel, where are you from? <laughs> exactly. And you sound British and you. Yeah, but you don't look Arab, but you're the, you know. So I said, look, I'm Palestinian. He says, just hop in. I hop in and we go through these big forests and trees and whatever it was really it's like a real smuggle and then I find myself in Janine in the in the and and I'm looking for things to remember and I couldn't remember anything so anyway I finally get in a car in a taxi I asked around and I get in a taxi and and I tell him just take me to where the graveyards are and and I remember the graveyard, you know, the graveyards when I was a kid. He takes me to the graveyards. I'm looking, he's like, hey, is there another graveyard? Because the walls were really low. And I remember as a child, the walls were really high. Oh. You know, I could never look into the yes. graveyard because they were too high. So I was really, really short. And he says, no, these are the only ones. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, you know, I had to, it was all based on my memory as a child. But I remembered an exit because there was a railway track. And I said, from here, just stop me here, I'll find my way. And I walk. And as I get to the house, to as things were beginning to look familiar, I find a lot of people waiting outside on the big balcony, had a massive balcony. Word went round Janine that there's a Jewish Israeli guy, <laughs> you know, there's an Israeli guy asking for the Hindawi residents. And, you know, and they thought that, you know, yeah. the, the police or whatever. They thought they were in trouble. And my auntie comes out and says, you? What are you doing here? How did you get here? How did you get in here? Da, da, da. Call your mother now. <laughs> and, you know, as I was going to call my mother, my mother calls. She mm. knew. She felt it. 
Well, Midian, it's been amazing talking to you. I've loved this book, every single page of it. There's so much in there. There's humor, there's there's discoveries, emotional moments, um, history. I mean, everything. You you talk about pink washing, explain that, the the um the exile of the Palestinians. I mean, it's just so descriptive, so beautiful. Um, Mabrouk, congratulations on, on this beautiful memoir and thank you for being on Breaking Free today. It's been such a pleasure. The pleasure is mine, really. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Really, it's important to me um, and it's important for me to send out these messages to others who need them and who would benefit from knowing them. So thank you, Rania. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniacurdy.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.